Chapter Twenty One of Policy and Passion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Policy and Passion by Rosa Campbell Praed. Chapter Twenty One The Lips That Were Nearest. Honoria passed a restless night. She had vivid dreams, during which she wandered in a mysterious forest that was infested by dread shapes whose pursuit she tried in vain to flee. She awoke panting and oppressed by a terrible midnight dread. Barrington's eyes seemed to haunt the darkness. They were like evil things before which she cowered. Her limbs tingled. Her head sickened and throbbed. In the distance a storm was brooding. The lightning flashed intermittently, and low growls of thunder sounded like supernatural warnings. The electrical condition of the atmosphere intensified her nervous excitement. Sometimes she fancied that she heard Barrington groaning in his chamber, not far from her own. She felt almost impelled to rise and ask if he were in pain. The night seemed never-ending. All through the darkness she lay with her nerves in a state of tension, till morning broke and the lowing of the milkers, the stampede of horses to the yards, the cracking of stock-whips, and other sounds of station activity seemed to mock at her nocturnal fears. When she took her place at the breakfast-table, she was told by Lord Dolph, who, with Mr. Ferris, had paid occasional visits to Barrington's room, that the invalid had passed a feverish night, and that the broken limb still caused him considerable pain. "'I am sorry to say that we are obliged to leave him,' said Lord Dolph. "'We must start home this afternoon.' It is no end of a bore, but Maggie and I are due in Leckhart's town to-morrow, and cannot put off our journey. However, he added, I am certain that Barrington could not be in better hands, and that we need not concern ourselves upon his account. I want to go to Leckhart's town, said Honoria suddenly. Will you take me? Delighted, I am sure, replied Lord Dolph, looking dismayed, for he and Maggie had congratulated themselves upon the turn events were taking. But I say— "'Isn't it rather hard upon poor Barrington?' "'I shall be ready whenever you please, "'and am much obliged for your escort,' said Honoria, "'haughtily waving the innuendo. "'Mr. Ferris will give you orders about my horse.' "'Maddox appeared at breakfast in riding-gear "'and announced his intention of starting for Barramunda "'immediately after breakfast. "'His eyes sought those of Honoria, "'but she looked defiantly before her. "'When the meal was over, the party separated.' Lady Dolph accompanying her husband and Mr. Ferris to inspect a certain prize bull, and Mrs. Ferris departing to make jelly for the invalid. Honoria and Maddox were left alone on the veranda. Janie, said he to the child who came hanging on to her sister's skirts, go and find Aunt Penelope. You must not order me, said Janie with dignity. Little mother, I'll be a good girl if you will let me stay with you. This is how little girls behave when they are good and she put on a demure expression, and seating herself upon a stool, twiddled her thumbs. I'll get Robinson Crusoe, and stay very quiet. I must say good-bye in a moment, said Dyson. Have you really determined to go with the Bassets to Leckhart's town? Yes, I shall not come back to Kuralbin till the session is over. I think that I understand the reason of your sudden resolution, he began awkwardly. I admire the womanly delicacy which shrinks— "'There is no need to mince the matter,' interrupted Honoria, switching off a hornet that buzzed about her head. "'Don't credit me with what I have not. I want to avoid Mr. Barrington. That is the truth. He is a strange man.' 
He has a peculiar way of looking at me. I am afraid of his eyes. I do not know myself when he is near me. I dread his gaining a mastery over me. I have a thousand contradictory sensations. I half like, half detest him. I am a weak fool. If I had a mother, I would go to her and ask her advice. But she could not guard me against myself. And I have no one, no one who has any sympathy with me. There is not a creature in the world who understands me, unless, indeed, it is Mr. Barrington himself. Your father loves you deeply, said Dyson, uttering one of those platitudes which occur to a good man when he is embarrassed. If you are in doubt, can you not confide in him? Certainly not. He would beat with hammer and tongs at my destiny. He has only one idea, one hope for my future, and it will be disappointed. And we have both a shrinking from gush. I feel myself becoming icy cold when it is borne in upon me that I ought to show some emotion. I can understand how much easier it is for a woman to bear her soul in the confessional than to make her pitiful confidences to the domestic tyrant with whom she must presently dine. Honoria laughed sarcastically, and Dyson marveled at the change in her manner, from troubled appeal to cynical banter. He began, Miss Longleat, I have heard upon good authority a report about Mr. Barrington, which I think you ought to know. Well, she said, folding her hands, tell on. It is said that he was expelled from the guards on account of some dishonorable action of which I do not know the details, and probably if I did, could not insult you by naming. There is no insult in truth, replied she, looking at him grandly. It is when accusations are false that the details cannot be mentioned. He has the reputation of being a roué, a spendthrift, a fortune-hunter. Well, cried she, flaring round upon him at the last words, and what of that? I know your authority. It is General Compton, who was worse than all this himself, and who has gone from Leckhart's town so that he cannot be called to account. I don't care two pence for your authority. Do you think that I do not know when a man is in love with myself? Am I so old or so ugly that people should only wish to marry me for my money? I hate those cold, self-contained persons who are always attributing the worst of motives. As for that report about the guards, I don't believe a word of it. At least, said Maddox, I have done my duty in warning you. You had better have been silent, she said sullenly. I do not know you when you cry a man down behind his back. It is not like you and she walked away. "'Mr. Dyson,' said Janie, looking up suddenly from her book, "'was Robinson Crusoe a good man?' "'Good enough, I dare say, Janie,' said Dyson shortly. "'Then I shall see him in heaven,' rejoined Janie reflectively. "'And I'm very glad of that, for I have got such a lot of questions to ask him. I wonder if Friday will be there, too.' "'Come, Janie,' said Honoria, returning to where the child sat. "'Little mother is going away to-day.' and there are a great many things to be done. Good-bye, Mr. Maddox. She bowed loftily to Maddox, and taking the child's hand, left him. Barrington recovered rapidly. The night after Honoria's departure with the Bassets, he composed a careful message, which he begged Mrs. Ferris to deliver to her, and was surprised and mortified to find that she had gone. Surely it was a sudden move, he ejaculated. She had no immediate plans. "'Bless us!' exclaimed Mrs. Ferris. "'You cannot count upon what Miss Longleat will do. 
She has been up and down like the wind these last three months. Now she will be in Leichardt's town for the winter, and I am to follow before long with Janie. She is a kind-hearted girl, is Honoria, and likes to give me a little pleasure. I am sure that she is fond of having me with her, and she knows that I enjoy a change from this dull place. So I leave Angela with her father, and they moon about together and don't miss me. It cuts me to the heart, but it's a fact. They are happier without me. Though disappointed at first, Barrington was, upon consideration, not ill-pleased at Honoria's flight. It was a confession of weakness which made him feel almost certain of ultimate conquest. He determined to follow her as soon as his arm would allow him to travel. In the meantime, his quarters were far from unpleasant. Soon he was able to sit out in the garden, and before many days to resume his rambles with Angela. It was now that he began to observe a womanly consciousness in the young girl's face and manner which had never before been called into being. It flattered his vanity and imparted a more piquant flavoring to her society. Averted glances, blushes, and soft tremblings of the lips might be considered a just tribute to his influence, and, more undoubtedly, provocative of caresses, and a kiss more or less, granted that it involved no unpleasant consequences of detection and explanation, seemed to Barrington but the natural result of their undivided companionship, their daily roamings in solitary places, and evening dalliance in the moonlit garden. Sometimes Barrington fancied that Honoria's presence had acted as a blight upon the play of Angela's capricious spirits. With its withdrawal she bloomed into fuller life, and no longer appeared languid and ungenial. Her tendency to lonely musings was less marked. Her laughter sounded more frequently. Her eyes grew brighter, and her step more buoyant. The days were becoming cooler, and the crisp autumnal weather infected Barrington, always peculiarly sensitive to atmospheric influences, with a feeling of exhilaration and dreamy enjoyment, in which all nature harmonized with his longings, and Angela's poetic grace supplied the feminine charm without which his life was incomplete. Down in umbrageous retreats, chosen haunts by the shadow-flecked river, drinking delights from the murmur of streams and the flutter of wings, streams as they murmur, bright wings as they flutter, green leaves as they quiver, all have strange music for her and a tale of invisible things, quoted Barrington from a poem that he had been reading aloud to Angela. She was sitting in a careless attitude upon the bank of the creek, the windings of which they had followed a considerable distance above the station. While Barrington lay upon the grass at her feet, his head resting upon his hand and his eyes from between their half-closed lids upturned to hers in a gaze of indifferent admiration. "'Ah, Angela,' he said, they are fools who tell us there is no poetry in an Australian forest. But a native singer must arise and coin new phrases in which to paint its beauties. Tinkling streams and verdant meadows and rustling leaves, all the hackneyed similes of the old world poetasters, do not harmonize with the booming of the waterfalls, the moaning of the she-oaks, the hum of life in these wild glades. My dear, if time could be always summer, and life along today, you and I might dwell happily enough among these mountains. But a man's destiny lies in his wayward passions and hungering desires. He must follow where they lead him. You are not going away, murmured Angela. Oh, stay, she added brokenly, extending her arms with innocent passion. I will do anything you wish. I, I must be near you. I want nothing except to be near you, to serve you, to hear you speak. 
Barrington raised himself and drew the girl gently towards him, till her head rested upon his shoulder, and her slight form palpitated in his embrace. "'My love,' he whispered, "'we are brother and sister, you and I. This is not parting, and wherever destiny may lead me, my heart will repose on you. Yet, dear child, do not dwell over much on the thought of me. Your genius has glorious capabilities in which I may have no part. Your life and mine must travel on separate lines, near yet asunder. Compared with you, I am old, world-worn and disappointed. Love me, my sweet one, as a sister, and I will be your loyal brother, holding none nearer or dearer than you. As he held her against his breast, he felt that she drew a deep long sigh, but she did not speak, nor did she withdraw herself from his arms. They sat thus for several moments, blissful to Angela. She had not comprehended the full significance of his words. That she might love him unrebuked seemed to her the fullness of joy. Marriage was too material a consummation of her dream to have entered into her childish imaginings. She asked nothing for the future. Love to her was but guile, less ecstasy in which, if there were no rebuff, there could be no shame. To Barrington there was a very sensible delight in the pressure of her slight yielding form, but it was counterbalanced by a sudden dread, due to a rustling among the bushes on the opposite bank, lest an unseen eye should be watching and condemning. He looked up and perceived a white face leering at him from between the branches of a tie-tree that overhung the stream. It was a disagreeable countenance, mean and cruel, though not destitute of a certain intelligence of expression. Its owner had evidently occupied his post of observation for some considerable time, for now that concealment was unnecessary, he parted the foliage and revealed himself, comfortably ensconced in the angle of a forked limb, with a tattered volume in one hand and a hunch of salt-junk and damper in the other. The eavesdropper uttered a loud, insulting laugh. Barrington released Angela, bade her go homewards, and said that he would follow. "'You mean hound!' he cried, advancing to the edge of the creek. "'How dare you spy upon me in this way!' "'I have as good a right to the river-bank as you,' retorted the other. "'For that matter, I was here before you. Come, I have done a bit of sweethearting in my time. I like to see a man making the most of his opportunities. They don't present themselves too often.' When love is liberty and nature law, you know. You are fond of poetry. Is it not Byron who says? And there were sighs, the deeper for suppression, and stolen glances sweeter for the theft, and burning blushes. D. Blank, your impudence! exclaimed Barrington, leaping the narrow strip of water that separated him from his adversary. Take that, and that! and he seized the student by the scruff of the neck, and, being of powerful build, fairly lifted him from the tie-tree and kicked him into the bush. He then recrossed the creek and joined Angela, who, pale and frightened, was leaning against a tree, having witnessed the encounter, though she was too far off to have heard the rapid colloquy. "'I am afraid that you have been startled,' said Barrington as he led her away. "'The man was impudent, and I chastised him. He had been spying upon us from the tree and deserved his kicking.' I don't think that he will eavesdrop again in a hurry. Did you catch sight of his face? Do you know who the creature is? It was Sammy Deans, replied Angela. He has just come out of prison. I don't like him, but he is very fond of Shakespeare, and reads sometimes with father. 
This is such a lonely place, father says, that one ought to encourage a love of art in the few who show any taste for it. Think of the joy it gives in solitude. And I was sorry for poor Sammy when his little boy died. He loved him very much. End of chapter 21 Read by Celine Major.